Hello and welcome to Knowledge Engage, the podcast of the Institute for Policy and Engagement at the University of Nottingham. My name is Amanda Chikudozi and this episode is part of our special series to mark the COP conference in Glasgow in 2021. Today, I'm going to be speaking to two of our academics on modern slavery and the climate crisis. Dr. Bethany Jackson is a Rights Lab Senior Research Fellow in Modern Slavery and Sustainable Ecosystems. And Dr. Jess Sparks is a Rights Lab Associate Director and Assistant Professor of Anti-Slavery Ecosystems. Welcome, Bethany and Jess. Could you tell us a little bit about yourselves and how this research came to be? So we'll start with Bethany and then Jess. You can introduce yourselves and we'll talk a bit about the research. Yeah, sure. So I am a research fellow at the Wrights Lab. Um, I did my PhD uh, at the lab, uh, which was around remote sensing and the application of that as a methodology to investigate modern slavery and its environmental impact. And then since I started working at the Wrights Lab, we've begun expanding our work. And so a lot of my work focuses on forestry. We do some work in agriculture and food systems and looking at that connection between modern slavery, the environment and climate change. And I like to use a mixed methods approach. So still taking that satellite data, but combining it with some of the interesting work that Jess does. Thanks, Beth. I think Beth did a great job of covering our ecosystems and environment program at the Rights Lab, which is the program that I lead. How I got into this research is a bit of a a story to it in that I was a social worker before I returned to school to do my PhD. And at the time in the United States where I was living, I was doing forensic interviews of human trafficking, people who had been identified as potential victims and survivors of human trafficking that were going through the criminal justice system. I was interviewing, uh, this was primarily women who were identified as potential victims or survivors of human trafficking. I started hearing narratives around exploitation occurring on fishing vessels. And so when I went back to school to do my PhD, I became interested in combining the interdisciplinary background I have, my social work background with my environmental science background, which is how I ended up starting to research the nexus between environmental change in fisheries and working conditions. And so in fisheries, that's most often overfishing or fish stock declines, illegal fishing, etc. And from there, when I joined the Reds Lab, we started the Ecosystems and Environment Program. We decided to start scaling up and out across different sectors. So looking at what lessons from each sector were transferable across sectors, but also what are the unique dimensions. Besides some of the sectoral work that we do, we also do work around climate change and other typologies of modern slavery. So not just labor, but also looking at climate change and forced early in child marriage. Wow, that's wonderful. That's fascinating to hear how you got into this line of work. Can you tell us a bit about the Ecosystems and Environment Program, but also a little bit about modern slavery? I mean, I think it's a term that we hear often and the different connotations when you hear that term. But just for the purpose of people listening, what does it mean and how does this fit into the Ecosystems and Environment Program? Sure. Modern slavery, we often use it as an umbrella term to mean to encompass things like forced labor, labor exploitation, human trafficking, etc. So it can get a bit confusing because it is not legally defined in international conventions. But of course, the UK has a modern slavery act. And so it is the terminology used in UK policies. And then Modern slavery is the focus of the Rights Lab. So we have five programs and the Ecosystems and Environment is one of the core five programs. So we are guided by an overarching research question of how is environmental and climatic change interconnected with modern slavery? So we look both at how the environment 
and or climate can both drive modern slavery, but also how modern slavery drives environmental change as well. And even how modern slavery may contribute to climate change and that we actually just completed an analysis. Our colleague, Dr. Edgar Rodriguez Huerta, led our work trying to isolate the carbon cost of forced labor activities in uh, two supply chains, sugarcane and soy in Brazil. So we look at the multi-directional relationship, but we also don't lose sight of the systemic variables or the systemic factors that also drive modern slavery. So inequality, discrimination, racism, etc. Instead, we look at how environmental and climatic change also intersects with those systemic structural factors as well. I suppose that this is what brings us to the modern slavery, environmental degradation, climate change nexus. Tell us a little bit about that and your research on that. Yeah, so the modern slavery, environmental degradation, climate change nexus is cyclical and bidirectional connection between issues of forced labour and environmental conditions. So when we take a sector, for example, brick manufacturing, which we've done a lot of work on in the lab, the system of modern slavery that occurs there is something called debt bondage. And the process of the brick making itself can lead to atmospheric emissions, so CO2, PM2.5, which obviously contributes to climate change. And then that can lead to other factors which can push people either to migrate. So in Cambodia, for example, uh, those greenhouse gases have led to a change in the climate climate there which have caused drought and the agricultural sector is thus under a lot of pressure and failing so those folks that traditionally work in agriculture have migrated to urban environments for example and then they've ended up in situations of debt bondage in brick kilns which then perpetuates the cycle. So we have this situation where modern slavery can be both a result of climate change but can also have this factor of contributing. That's just one example but we see that in many other sectors so we look at fishing and the forests and the same sort of principles apply and when they intersect with other social issues like poverty, racism, discrimination, migration. So we end up with a multitude of factors which then can lead to other forms of discrimination and labour exploitation. Just to build off, I think Beth used the term bidirectional, but I would actually say that those relationships are multi-directional and non-linear as well. And one thing that guides our research in the ecosystems program is that we like to take a systems approach. So thinking about the linkages between coupled systems, in this case, the environmental system and the social or labor system, and also thinking about using the systems approach to think about unintended consequences. What happens if we push on a pressure point in one system, like in an intervention, what are both the planned and unintended consequences that you may see in the other system? An example of that would be some work that we've been doing recently around sustainable food systems. And I believe it's the year of the sustainable diet this year. But a lot of times when we talk about sustainable diets, it's really only talking about environmental sustainability. And so we've been looking at what are the trade-offs between the environmental and the social dimensions of sustainability in food systems, for example. Another example that we see is with the transition to particular like solar energies, the use of batteries, solar batteries, solar panels. A lot of that cobalt comes from the DRC. A majority of the world's cobalt comes from the DRC. A lot of mining uses child and forced labor. We have a colleague, Siddharth Kara, who's doing research on that topic as well. Again, looking at you know, if all of a sudden everyone decides that they want a hybrid vehicle or solar panels on their home, 
what will it take to scale to that in a quick time frame and what are the impacts on labor? In particular, could we then see an increase in forced and child labor in areas where the cobalt is mined since cobalt is fundamental primarily to the batteries in solar panels, hybrid vehicles, etc.? Yeah, that's really interesting. First of all, I didn't know that was this, this was the year of the sustainable diet. And it just it just sounds like something that we should all be paying attention to. I wanted to ask, because you mentioned, you know, ethical and sustainable ways of, you know, dealing with the environment. And when you speak about cobalt mining in DRC, something we've seen a lot of news about and the exploitation of children in the mines in DRC. Who is responsible for this? Who do we hold to account for this? Who are the players around the table? What are their roles and what should people be doing about this? So I'd say that comes from the need for collaborative action. So a lot of the times at present, we rely on audits and large companies. But what we don't have is a mass system of monitoring, for example. So that's something that a colleague, along with Siddharth, uh, Dr. Chloe Brown is working on at the moment, using satellite data to map and track those informal illegal mining settlements that may be adjacent to larger, more regulated, in a sense, large mining companies. But I would say we need this collaborative action between finance, development and organisations like the anti-slavery and environmental communities to work together to address modern slavery impacts where they may not have been undertaken previously. And I think targeting of development and finance in particular is really important. A lot of these large scale companies rely on access to funds or the governments rely on access to funds to be able to invite companies within to locations to operate in sites such as mining or develop new infrastructure that will service these projects. So by targeting things like the access to financial aid and tying that to informed legislation, which is actively monitoring and providing due diligence in a way that is punishable, in a way that has targeted punishments in the form of financial penalties, for example, we can actually try to make progress from a combined social and environmental standpoint, rather than trying to target modern slavery on its own or trying to target environmental issues on their own. And that could shift the issue from one that moves the community to another area where they could face more vulnerable situations. I would also add to that that uh, Beth was talking about, you know, how countries, governments can even sort of leverage trade sanctions or financial aid sanctions. But also just a reminder that these issues don't occur just in low and middle income countries. We have these issues of slavery tied to the environment and the climate in lots of countries, high income, low income and middle income countries. Just the past few days, the International Transport Workers Federation, they've been doing a large scale campaign, for example, around modern slavery in the fishing sector in Ireland. So no country is immune from these issues. I would also say no supply chain is immune from these issues. And so it's um, important to remember that. It's also, and that corporations, they're both market mechanisms and policy-based mechanisms that need to be leveraged in tandem, but that they need to be binding. A lot of times our market-based mechanisms tend to be voluntary and there's no recourse when they don't hold themselves accountable to these voluntary standards or tools, et cetera. And what happens is, you know, workers don't feel comfortable coming forward because there's no remedy or recourse. They don't see any consequences for when their rights are violated um, to those that are violating them. And I think the other thing to be aware of is when we're bringing all these actors to the table, again, going back to that notion of a systems approach and what are the unintended consequences, 
part of the neoliberal environmental movement has all been around efficiency. So from an environmental perspective, like in fishing, the sector where I work, if you want to end overfishing or end illegal fishing, uh, often the strategy is to try and reduce the size of the global fishing fleet. We know that there are lots of vessels that wouldn't be profitable, except that they get subsidies, primarily fuel subsidies, for example, from governments. And Beth hit on this a bit. But often, when just looking at the environmental side, the solution may be to eliminate those inefficient vessels from the sector. But those vessels may have very vulnerable workers on it who don't have much other choices in terms of employment. Those are people who have jobs who need those jobs. And where do they go when our mantra is from an environmental perspective is about improving efficiency. And so that's the importance of a systems approach and thinking through what are those consequences. So how do you hold the tension between environmental, social and economic dimensions, the three pillars of sustainability? What progress would you say has been made in in two areas? One, in terms of partnerships and the multi-sectoral coalitions that need to happen, would you say that we're on the right path in terms of coming together to do this? And secondly, what progress has been made on the issues and how has some of these partnerships and some of the, the awareness that has come around for the nexus affected the issues? How has this you know, reduced the problem. And also, can you speak a little bit about the roundtable that was held earlier this year around the climate change, environmental degradation? Yeah, so in tackling the nexus, I think there's been previously been quite a siloed approach. So anti-slavery organisations have rightly so tended to focus on the provision of services and frontline work with survivors and those individuals who are subjected to forms of modern slavery. And I think there's been a shift in the anti-slavery community with more people thinking about how the nexus, climate change and environment degradation are impacting vulnerabilities or are being driven by modern slavery. But I think in the meantime, in this vacuum, some environmental organisations who have previously identified social issues during their environmental programmes have taken it upon themselves to begin addressing modern slavery, but perhaps not always in the best way because their expertise isn't within that area. And I think that can then generate some of those additional issues that Jess was alluding to. We hosted a roundtable in collaboration with World Wildlife Fund, WWF US, and that event drew together members of the anti-slavery and environmental communities. And the aim was to encourage this collaborative action to tackle some of those unintended consequences of previous work and work towards partnerships that could bring on board expertise of anti-slavery knowledge where they may have been lacking in order to reduce some of those unintended consequences. What was really encouraging about the roundtable was that traditional environmental organisations are wanting to bring on board expertise in these relevant fields and collaborate in a way that hasn't been achieved or undertaken successfully previously. And they want to be informed and also work alongside researchers and then also be led by those researchers in spaces which are relevant to their work, but are adjacent to their core expertise. And that's really important when tackling the nexus moving forward. Another group that we haven't mentioned yet that I think is really important to always bring into the conversation is, so a lot of our work is around labor typologies and modern slavery. So making sure that workers and worker and their representative organizations have seats at these tables and at these conversations as well. And in spaces, you know, like forced marriage and its relationship to climate change, et cetera, making sure that survivors and survivor-led organizations are also at the table. And we're very fortunate in the Rights Lab to be able to work with 
Elizabeth Men, who's the executive director of the Survivor Alliance. And I believe she has used a quote before, you know, nothing about us without us. So we shouldn't be developing policies, be it about workers or women or survivors or whoever, unless they're also at the table. And so we hadn't touched on that and those individuals. And I wanted to make sure that we bring them into the conversation as well, because um, they most certainly should be at the table, too. Yeah, it, it brings to mind that saying that if you're not on the table, you're probably on the menu. So when we speak about coming to the table, and um, let's speak a bit about the colonial focus. And let's talk about basically the overemphasis on former colonized countries when it comes to recommendations for climate change and steps that need to be taken. Do you think that there are certain sectors and geographies that are overemphasized in the conversation? Um, do you think this is something that needs to be taken into consideration at COP26? What, what, what would you say about that? I would say absolutely. So this ties into a little bit what I was talking about previously about this neoliberal idea of efficiency to make things more sustainable and how when we use that model, we're putting the burden on the workers who are more likely to come from the former colonies, but also low middle income countries, etc. Instead of putting the pressure on the corporations, the multinational corporations, which are more often coming out of, you know, the EU, the US, UK, Australia, et cetera, your Western high income countries, et cetera. And so we're putting, you know, we're burning the workers instead of burning the corporations who are driving these problems. So I would agree. And this is we have parallels here between the climate foci on former colonies, but also the anti-slavery community also has a similar focus. We tend to, again, focus a lot on specific geographies, despite the fact that we know that these exploitive labor practices are present in most geographies, in most supply chains. I'm very fortunate to work with Ame Segev from Humanity United. And I think uh, I always hear her say, if you go looking for modern slavery in your supply chain, you will find it. And part of that is because most of the world is living under a capitalist system. And we like to make profit and we tend to exploit labor to make that profit. So having said that, what recommendations would you put forward to policymakers? What should they be speaking about? What should they be focusing on? And what should they be doing in the long term, not just at the conference? As Jess just mentioned, I think holistically addressing modern slavery impacts is really important. We have this overfocus on former colonized nations. We also have this overfocus on specific sectors in certain areas. So, for example, there's so much work on fishing in Thailand, but there's very little work on, say, fishing in the UK. But we know that's an issue. If it's an issue in Ireland, it's probably an issue in the UK waters as well. And there are cases of that. I think, again, centering survivor voices and worker voices moving forward is really important. And I think that also goes to around COP26. Those nations that are most heavily impacted by climate change should be brought to the table. They should be leading in the conversations. It shouldn't be for the US and the UK to be driving and forcing change on those nations that are experiencing those drastic effects, such as Bangladesh or the Pacific Islands. Their vulnerabilities are very different to our own vulnerabilities. And I think it's important that those workers that are being impacted there, those communities are really being heard and their voices are the ones that are central to the movement. Again, I think combining legislative action with actual recourse is really important. And we shouldn't be looking at legislation which only focuses on modern slavery or only focuses on environmental impacts. If we know that the two are intrinsically linked, we should be looking forward at integrating those in a wider approach, a bit like the way the EU is thinking about it at the minute with their human rights and environmental due diligence framework. But we need something that isn't just located on one block. We need to think about that and how it can be scaled in a global sense. 
And then again, I think, as we mentioned earlier, those targeting of development and finance communities is really important and making sure that when we do encourage development, it's sustainable. And we're thinking about green technologies, green investment, but then also acknowledging that there may be issues in those supply chains and working to make sure that the vulnerabilities aren't shifted to the labor force, making sure that it's an actual equitable and sustainable way of development. I would also add or encourage policymakers to start thinking much more holistically about what a just transition means. So we hear this phrase just transition a lot, and I don't have any specific numbers, so I'll make up one that I I feel like, you know, 80, 90 percent of the time that I hear the phrase just transitions. It's really about workers who work in highly polluting sectors or industries. So, for example, like people who work in coal, like finding the new employment that is in a more sustainable sector than coal. And what gets lost in that narrow focus is how are we actually going to integrate climate change considerations into worker protections, which is a very hot topic right now, particularly for workers who work in industries and sectors that are primarily based outdoors. So agriculture, you know, what are the effects of heat stress and air pollution, etc. on agricultural workers, or Beth mentioned brick kilns earlier, mining. So there is some movement in a couple countries around how to integrate heat stress and climate change considerations into worker protections. And I think that is a huge dimension of a just transition. But also, as Beth mentioned, and as we talked about earlier, part of this holistic understanding of what just transitions are needs to also consider as we move towards more sustainable and renewable energies, making sure that those supply chains have decent working conditions throughout you know, every aspect of the supply chain. So we're not inadvertently putting more pressure on vulnerable workers. Final question. What does success look like for each one of you? So just really quickly, like in one sentence, what will make you feel like your job is done? Sleep. <laughs> Beth, do you want to go first? I think success in in the anti-slavery movement will be survivor-led action against the nexus in collaboration with the environmental sector. So the survivors taking ownership of their own destiny, basically. And Jess? Most of our my work is in labor typologies, so I would add institutionalization of labor rights globally. Uh, a lot of the sectors that we work in, from fishing to agriculture, are purposefully excluded from labor protections in a lot of countries. And so we're still on the ground level, just trying to get labor protections in place. And the other one I would add is I think we have a tendency, even though we have definitions from the International Labor Organization of what decent work is, we often define decent work by the absence of its antithesis, which is, you know, modern slavery, human trafficking, etc. And so we're basically saying, well, it's not really, really bad, so it must be okay. So we legitimize a lot of exploitive practices, better understanding, better operationalization and recognition of decent work to go hand in hand with improved labor protections. Those sound achievable. (laughs) Thank you very much, Bethany and Jess. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for listening to Knowledge Engaged. If you'd like to find out more on the topics covered in this episode, click on the links in the show notes. Look out for our next episode in our COP26 special series. You can listen to old episodes of Knowledge Engaged wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.